So I've only been to the optometrist twice in my life. I went once just for a general exam, just to get my eyes checked, and the doctor told me that I had 20-20 vision. There was no need for glasses, no need for contacts. I saw perfectly. And of course, this was when I was much younger. I was in my mid-20s by this time. The second time I went to the optometrist was just a few years ago in my early 40s, and the outcome was a bit different. You see, I, it wasn't too bad, but the doctor confirmed that I needed reading glasses, right? I just needed some glasses to help me magnify the words on the screen, the words on the page. And I was told that um, it would also help me if I had some distance glasses, some, some glasses to help me focus um, in the things in the distance, you know, particularly while I was driving, that would, that would be helpful. And so I have to tell you that I wear reading glasses often because it's important to me. It's really important to me that I focus on what I'm reading. I want to see. I don't like things out of focus while I'm reading things on the screen. And so I keep a pair of reading glasses everywhere, like many of you probably do. I keep them in my purse, in my desk, next to my bed, on the kitchen table, on the end table, in my living room. They're everywhere because I want to be able to read things that I see, things that I read. But the one pair of glasses that I need to see distance mainly stays in the console of my car. I have to admit, I, I rarely even pull them out and wear them while I'm driving. And now, don't worry, I'm perfectly safe. I can see just fine to operate a vehicle and to avoid crashes. I just may not be able to see the advertisement um, the billboard, the phone number, maybe for that injury law firm, that I won't need because I can see perfectly fine. So I don't believe that I need glasses to help me see things in the distance because they're just not as important. The things out there, I, I don't need to see those things, but I do need my reading glasses. I need to see things that are close up, things that are right in front of me. Those are the things that matter to me. Well. This is similar to life, as you know. The things that are distant, the things that are far off, the things that are kind of on the margins, they're just not as important to us. They're not as important to us in life. We see the things that are close up and we pay attention to the details that are right in front of us, right? We, we don't often have the time or the energy to focus on things in the distance. The things that are far off don't matter. We believe that things that we see close up, that's what matters. That's what's important to life. But this morning, however, I want us to put on our glasses. I want us to put on our spiritual glasses, and I want us to see things that we don't normally see. I want us to focus in on what's really important. I want us to focus in on who Jesus says is important. And so to help us focus we turn to the passage that was read this morning. These verses in Matthew 25 is a parable that Jesus uh, tells us in his last sermon before he goes to the cross, the last sermon that we find in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. He tells actually three parables in this chapter 25. They're all related to the kingdom of God. And this one in particular describes the judgment that will take place when the king comes. 
And now you may be wondering, Sarah, um, didn't we just celebrate the birth of Jesus? And we're still in the season of Christmastide, right? So why are we jumping to a passage that appears to be about the second coming of Jesus and a very harsh judgment? Well, friends, this passage, it is actually listed in the lectionary for, as a text for New Year's Day. And so as I was thinking, as I was praying, I was looking at all the, the text uh, at the lectionary, I, I recognized something. I recognized that the joy that comes when we celebrate Christ's birth, we celebrate Christ as the king, the king that has come to earth. Yes, he's born in a humble manger, but he was born to reign and rule in the hearts and in the lives of the people, in, in the hearts and lives of you and me. The prophecy in Isaiah that many of us are familiar with and that we heard during the Advent season is recorded in chapter 9, verse 6. It tells us, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and, his na and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But the prophecy continues in verse 7. It says, His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. So Jesus, the baby born to a teenage girl, has come to bring peace, and he's come to bring a kingdom like no other. So it is the reason um, King Herod was so paranoid when he heard that, that there was a new king that was born in the city of Bethlehem. But even Herod couldn't thwart the plans that God had for his son here on earth. Jesus grew up, he taught, he taught about a kingdom, this new kingdom, a kingdom that is now, a kingdom that is present in the lives of those who believe. And he taught about a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom that is ruled by justice and peace and love. And so next Sunday, don't worry, we'll get back to the Magi visiting the Christ child. But this morning, we're going to explore how we are to live as members of this kingdom, of God's kingdom in this world. This parable, though, presents a bit of a challenge to us, a bit of a hermeneutical challenge. <clears throat> if you're reading just this passage and you take it at face value, it seems as if Jesus is then saying that what gets you into this kingdom is works, right? He says in not so many words that if you do these things, then you will be blessed and you'll receive eternal life. And if you don't engage in the least of these, then watch out because you'll receive eternal punishment. So it doesn't seem like there's a, this is a message of salvation by grace through faith which is what we believe. So could it be that Jesus is preaching a works-based salvation? Well, certainly not, certainly not. We are good students of the Bible, and as being good students of the Bible, we understand that you don't, that one of the major hermeneutical rules then is that you never extract a passage 
um, a doctrine from just one single passage of scripture, right? Instead, you take your findings from that one passage and you compare it to the whole of scripture. You look from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, what is the theme? And so when we look at the entire biblical text, there is this constant theme that is woven throughout scripture. We are saved by faith, by grace through faith. See, even in the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, we see that God says of Abram that his belief was accredited him as righteousness. He didn't have to go to the temple. He didn't have to go to the synagogue, not that it existed at that time. But he didn't even have to be circumcised until later in Genesis. Abraham simply believed, and he was saved. He was, it was accredited him as righteous. Then we um, see in the words of Paul in the New Testament, Romans 5, he writes, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were still liars and thieves and addicts and such, before we got our stuff together, as if we've gotten our stuff together now, God loves us and he sent his son and we did nothing to earn it. It's by his grace that we're saved. Again, listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians. He says it very clearly, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So now that we have the context, let's get back to what Jesus is saying and we understand that Jesus is not preaching works salvation. So if he's not teaching us how to be saved, then what could he mean by this coming judgment? Well, one scholar says of Matthew 25, 31 through 46, it doesn't deal with the route of salvation, but it deals with the fruits of salvation. Throughout Matthew's gospel, then, we see a focus on doing what Jesus commands, that there's a focus on righteousness, of right living, and it doesn't come from effort or from trying really hard. No, Matthew points out repeatedly that good fruit comes from good trees, and trees are known by their fruit. And even in chapter 13, he talks about the different soils, and good soil produces good fruit. Matthew's Jesus does not instruct his disciples to become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He tells them that they are such. Because they are followers of Jesus, they are the light of the world. They are the salt of the earth. So here in Jesus's parable, the kingdom is an inheritance. It's a gift, not something that's earned. You can't do anything to you know, make yourself worthy of it. It's just given to you because of your faith, because of your belief in Christ. So both groups in this parable, the sheep and the goats, do you find this interesting? They're both unaware of what they've done. They both ask, when have we done these things? The righteous, 
they've been just act they haven't been acting like in some calculated way to earn God's favor. They've simply been doing what comes naturally for them and caring for their neighbors. Their actions are then a sign of their relationship with a loving and merciful God, with the Son of God who came not to be served, but to serve as a result of their relationship with God. Likewise, those on the left, the goats, and perhaps this is the one time you do not want to be called a goat, um, if you get that, uh, have you, they have been coming, they have been doing what has come naturally to them, right? They've been looking out for their own interest. They've not been bothered by the needs of others. Those who know Christ as king, they live securely. They have this confidence that the one who meets their needs will take care of them, and so they, in turn, can take care of others. They can provide for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, and the sick. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes, the difference between followers of Jesus and those who do not know Jesus is that those who have seen Jesus no longer have any excuse to avoid the least of these. You see, a heart filled with the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ, will be drawn to the poor and the powerless. Several years ago, I was working for a church in Marietta here in Georgia, and I was um, part of their youth leadership team. And the youth group partnered with an organization that was here in downtown Atlanta. We visited one Sunday this organization, and we served in their food pantry, and we uh, organized their clothing closet. <clears throat> but before we did that, the organization took us on a tour of the neighborhood. They affectionately called this tour the Unholy Land Tour. And I say affectionately because I know that these staff members, I know that they cared for the area of the city in which they served. They, they worked hard to help out when they saw a need. Now, I grew up in the suburbs, suburbs of Atlanta, and I had never seen this side of the city that I saw that day. We drove past crack houses, abandoned buildings, rundown businesses, shabby homes, the nonprofit team, they pointed out areas in the neighborhood where homeless populations lived and where prostitutes worked and where beggars begged. And for the first time in my life, I saw with my own eyes the poverty in the city. And I was a young adult at the time and I felt helpless. What could I do? And so you know what I did? I went back out to the suburbs and I tried to ignore what I had seen. Sure, I, I gave some money to the church because they supported that nonprofit who was working in that area, but that's all I did, that's all I gave. I, I may have prayed a prayer, you know, when it came to my mind for the workers that were in that area of the city serving the poor, the powerless. I couldn't unsee, though, the things that I had seen that day. And my heart broke. My heart broke that day for what Jesus came to redeem. The people on the margins, the poor, 
the powerless, the downtrodden. I've since learned that poverty and injustice in our country is quite a complicated system. There isn't a quick fix, there's no simple answer, there's no sure formula. I've also learned though that there are some really amazing organizations and individuals that are working hard to fix it, working hard for a solution to make it better, to end poverty, to eradicate hunger, to provide adequate housing. Peachtree Christian Church does a lot. We support and partner with many organizations here in the city and around the world to to help with these uh, needs. I'm really encouraged um, when it was reported that in 2022, our church gave over $58,000 to aid nonprofits serving the least of these. But I wonder, can we do more? In 2023, this new year, how can we as the body of Christ, how can we see and how can we meet the needs of those in our neighborhood? More than just giving financially, how can we see up close those suffering under poverty? So with our spiritual glasses on, what needs can we see that have simply been a blur in the distance? The things on the margins, And does this flow naturally from our relationship with Christ? Entering this new year, and and particularly as I was preparing for this sermon, there's a question that I've been asking myself and challenging myself with. And I wonder if I could ask you this question as well, extend it to you. How am I going to love God and love others this year? What is that going to look like in my own life? How will I open my eyes and see, put on my spiritual glasses and see those in need, focus on what's important? Will I go out of my way then, sacrificing my time or my energy or my things? For my neighbor? Will this new year be one marked by love for God and love for the least of these? Will it be a no strings attached, sacrificially unconditional love for any person in my vicinity? Will it be the same love displayed by Jesus to his closest followers? Will it be the same love displayed to Jesus as we see him in the face of the orphan, the refugee, the person on the street corner? Will we dare to love others in radical, jaw-dropping, and even unpopular ways? Or will we just be more of the same? Will we settle for giving our regular tithes and gift and ignoring what is out in the distance? The people and the places that seem far away, they're actually up close. They're here, they're among us. So how are we going to focus this year on loving God and seeing and serving the least of these?